Uh, you can go ahead and open up in your Bibles to Proverbs 25. Uh, as you're turning there, question for you, and I'm telling you right up front, I am looking for some feedback here. I'm looking for some actual answers. Um, if, you were, if you were engaged in a conversation this coming week with a non-believing friend or acquaintance, what would be some important uh, non-negotiable truths that you would feel compelled to communicate with someone? We're all sinners, I believe I heard. We're all sinners. Jesus loves you. There's one God. Jesus rose from the dead. The veracity of the Bible, so the truthfulness, the authority, the reliability of the Bible. Jesus is the only way. You must be born again. The hope of the gospel. There's hope. All right, we could continue. I'm sure we could. Um, and all of those things are important pieces that we would want to communicate. It did not surprise me that in answering the question that I just posed to you, that no one was compelled to call out and say, self-control. And yet, the Apostle Paul seemed to think that it was pretty important. Uh, in speaking to the Roman governor Felix and his wife Drusilla, Luke tells us in Acts chapter 24, it says that Felix sent for Paul and heard him speaking about faith in Christ Jesus. And it says in Acts 24, verse 25, as he, as Paul, reasoned about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment, Felix was alarmed and said, go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I will summon you. Now, I'm not disparaging, I'm not refuting any of the answers that you gave me, which were all good answers, but self-control? How did that make its way into Paul's gospel appeal to this Roman governor, Felix? Uh, evidently, self-control is more important than we might think that it is. Saying no to temptation, saying no to wrong desires is not the gospel. Do not misunderstand me. But it is a mark, we might even say it is a fruit, of all who have come to truly embrace the gospel. Maybe it was Jesus' own teaching, we don't know this, but perhaps it was Jesus' own teaching that compelled Paul to speak so openly and urgently about the necessity of self-control because it was Jesus who said, if anyone would come after me, you know these words, don't you? Let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. The, the call to follow Jesus is a call to exercise self-control, to deny ourselves. Self-control is not the gospel, but it is a fruit of the Spirit, and one that is, uh, I believe it has fallen on hard times. Um, I started a Google search, which is always a great way to engage your sermon preparation, just, just thumbing around Google. I started a Google search with, with self hyphen 
and you know how it starts to complete your thought. And it completed my thought in many ways. Self-esteem uh, was number one, perhaps not surprising. Self-conscious, self-deprecating, self-righteous, self-sufficient, self-storage near me. <laughs> Self-actualization, self-destruction even, but not self-control. Uh, if, if there was a continuum that goes on the one side from legalistic and restrained and ascetic on the one side to licentious and reckless and hedonistic on the other, I don't think I need to persuade you which side of that continuum our culture is on. When our desires speak, we listen. Uh, to do otherwise, we're told, is, is to deny our humanity and even to do harm to our identity. But no matter how it's regarded in the world, self-control is, in fact, a fruit of the Spirit. It's not something that we ought to be ashamed of, not something that we ought to be suspicious about. I think sometimes even in the church, you, you might think if the culture is so self-indulgent and decadent that we might be the ones waving the banner real high for the virtue of self-control. But I do think many Christians, even when they hear teaching and it, and it sounds like self-effort and hard work, I think many Christians probably assume that that's legalistic and not animated by the Holy Spirit. No matter how self-control is regarded by the world or the church, self-control is a fruit of the Spirit. The Apostle Paul, in his letter to the churches of Galatia, he mentioned nine fruit of the Spirit. We've been thinking about them all summer. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And we've dedicated uh, one sermon each to those first eight fruits, and this morning we conclude our study with the fruit of self-control. It's not only Paul that commends the value of self-control to the churches of Galatia, and as we'll see, he actually commends it in many of his uh, writings, but even in the book of Proverbs in the Old Testament, we've been leaning on the book of Proverbs to help us think through and practically apply each of these fruits of the Spirit. And even in the book of Proverbs, we see the virtue of self-control commended. Proverbs 25, 28 is where we're going to be spending our time this morning. Proverbs 25, 28. Let me pray briefly and ask for the Lord's help before I read this verse and we continue our time in God's word. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the joy that we've known in being together this morning. Uh, we pray, Father, that you would make us attentive now to your word and to this admonition to self-control. Again, perhaps more important than we realized, even as we're reminded in Paul's ministry to that Roman governor, Felix. Father, teach us, instruct us, give new life to us this morning by your Holy Spirit. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Proverbs 25, 28. A man without self-control is like a city broken into and left without walls. A man without self-control is like a city broken into and left without walls. 
this morning, I want us to think about a presupposition about self-control. Please don't be put off by the fact that I just used the word presupposition. I'll even explain what I mean if that word is like, huh? A presupposition about self-control and the pursuit of self-control. A man without self-control. I'm going to just say that verse, this verse a few times because it's actually the only verse. There, the, Proverbs has lots to say about self-control, but there's only one time it actually uses the word self-control, at least in the English Standard Version. It's this verse. So you're going to hear me say it a few times. A man without self-control. Women, you are not exempt by the fact that it happens to use the male word there, a man. A man without self-control is like a city broken into and left without walls. Now, in, in biblical times, a city without walls was unthinkable. It would be the height of foolishness because it was just inviting destruction. Any band of robbers uh, or a neighboring country could just roll in and take the city at, at will and, and bring about the suffering and the destruction of the entire community. Only strong walls could bring about security and a peaceful night's sleep. And so similarly, Solomon says, undisciplined people, people devoid of self-control, are like defenseless cities with marauders able to go in and out plundering the soul. A lack of self-control leaves us vulnerable to spiritual attack and destruction. That's the point of Proverbs 25, 28. Self-control, the word has to do, and we do have some other words in, uh, verses in Proverbs that use this kind of language, it has to do with restraint, holding back, hindering something. Self-control is the believer's wall of defense against the evil desires that threaten to destroy the soul. If I was to give you the main point of Proverbs 25, 28, I think that is it. Self-control is the believer's wall of defense against the evil desires that threaten to destroy the soul. And there's a presupposition involved in this. And when I say a presupposition, what I mean is there's a point that is being assumed and understood and taken for granted at the beginning of a line of argument. So there's a presupposition in the very existence of the word self-control. And the presupposition is this. It's taken for granted as a starting point in our consideration of self-control that the self has in it desires that need to be restrained. There's something in us that needs to be bridled, subdued, held back. The fact that there is something called self-control that is commended to us that we are to walk in presupposes that there's stuff in you and in me that needs to be held back. That's a presupposition. But it's, it's wise, I think, for us to pause and consider it briefly because this conviction is so at odds with the spirit of our age. I mean, it just sounds absolutely nonsensical in a society that even now is trying to remake its laws and redefine morality and 
re-envision even basic human building blocks like gender to allow our feelings and our desires to be recognized and protected as part of an individual's core identity. See, in, in our society, it's inappropriate. It is unloving. It is regarded as oppressive to question the legitimacy of someone's desires. But the Bible does not share that sentiment that is so culturally ingrained and becoming more and more ingrained. Proverbs 21.10 says, the soul of the wicked desires evil. And I just think it's hard for our, us to even understand that today in our culture because for at least a generation, if not some generations, our culture has been so immersed, and I think there's maybe some effort in it to correct real sins of the past, real sins like racism and sexism and other forms of prejudice, and our culture is trying to correct those very wrong evils that did take place, but it's correcting it with an equally dangerous remedy of bathing everyone in affirmation for everything. Repeated, continual, constant, unquestioning affirmation. And that climate that is just the air that we're breathing as a society has left us, or it could leave us, if I don't make a point like this, it's why I'm making a point like this, it could leave us with the idea that evil desires is like an oxymoron, like, like cold fire or dark light. Our desires are good because they're my desires. That's the way our culture is wired to think. But the word of God calls people to self-control because some of the things we desire can be wrong for us to desire. That's not popular because ever since sin entered the world, when our first parents decided that their desires trumped the good words of the God who had made them, ever since then, their offspring, that's all of us, we have considered boundaries on our desires and behavior to be violations of our personal freedom. They feel like curses rather than blessings. And yet the word of God reveals that it is the lack of personal boundaries that actually enslaves us and threatens to destroy us. And so God's word says, a man without self-control is like a city broken into and left without walls. We may have desires and cravings that feel natural even from birth. And we might therefore assume, because we have a desire and it's very strong, and I feel like it's just a part of who I am for as long as I can remember, we might assume that it must be right. But the book of Proverbs insists that we are not competent in and of ourselves to even discern what right is. Proverbs 12, 15 says, the way of a fool is right in his own eyes. Uh, Proverbs 28, 26, whoever trusts in his own mind is a fool, but he who walks in wisdom will be delivered. Proverbs 14, 12, 
There is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way to death. If we are to walk in the fear of God, we are to understand, we are to be suspicious of our desires. We are to be suspicious of our desires and we acknowledge that there are certain desires in us that need to be restrained, that need to be held back because of the corruption that now marks us because of sin. Sin is a posture of heart that displaces the true and living God from the throne of the universe and inserts ourselves, little old pitiful us, in its place. And so it is not accurate. I'm belaboring this point because I trust I'm kind of preaching to the choir here, but you need to know this and you need to be able to communicate this in a culture that just has a hard time comprehending it. It is false to assume that because we desire something, it therefore must be right. That is the presupposition that is at the heart of this commendation of the fruit of self-control. And the book of Proverbs calls us to bear the fruit of self-control in a number of areas of life. I'm just going to give you some rapid-fire Proverbs and things to think about until 1107. When I go over, I go over because I know I'm going over. Just put that out there. But I will do this until 1107. The book of Proverbs calls us to self-control with the expression of our emotions. Proverbs 29, 11. A fool gives full vent to his spirit, but a wise man quietly holds it back. The book of Proverbs calls us to self-control with our speech. Proverbs 10, 19. You don't have to write all these verses down. I'm happy to share with you my notes afterwards. When words are many, transgression is not lacking, but whoever restrains his lips is prudent. The book of Proverbs calls us to self-control with regard to our sexual appetites. This is something that I, I think, frankly, I'm inhibited about talking about a lot because of the wide range of age that is present in these gatherings weekly, but it is something that we must talk about. If it is not something you hear about a lot up here, do not think that it's because it's not important. It is something we must be talking about. It is something that the book of Proverbs and the word of God calls us to urgent and diligent self-control of in so many places. Much of Proverbs 5, 6, and 7 is devoted to this particular concern about self-control with regard to our sexual appetites. Proverbs 5, the lips of a forbidden woman drip honey and her speech is smoother than oil, but in the end, she is bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword. Why should you be intoxicated, my son, with a forbidden woman and embrace the bosom of an adulteress? For a man's ways are before the eyes of the Lord, and he ponders all his paths. The iniquities of the wicked ensnare him, and he is held fast in the cords of his sin. He dies for lack of discipline, and because of his great folly, he is led astray. The book of Proverbs calls us to self-control with regard to food and drink. Uh, Proverbs 23, verse 19. If you thought you were doing okay on that sexual immorality one, here. 
Here we are. Hear, my son, and be wise, and direct your way, and direct your heart in the way. Be not among drunkards or among the gluttonous eaters of meat. For the drunkard and the glutton will come to poverty, and slumber will clothe them with rags. The book of Proverbs calls us to self-control with regard to our appetite for money and wealth. Proverbs 23, 4. Do not toil to acquire wealth. Be discerning enough to desist. When your eyes light on it, it is gone, for suddenly it sprouts wings, flying like an eagle toward heaven. Rather than be lusting for more and more, the book of Proverbs calls us to pray for contentment, to pray for simply our daily needs. Remove from me, Proverbs 30, verse 8 Remove far from me falsehood and lying. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me, lest I be full and deny you and say, who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. The book of Proverbs calls us to self-control in, in taming the desire for ease and laziness. It does this by talking a lot about the sluggard. Proverbs 26, verse 13, the sluggard says, there's a lion in the road, there's a lion in the streets. As a door turns on its hinges, so does a sluggard on his bed. The slug, you're allowed to laugh at these. These are actually intended to be funny proverbs. That's a, that's a hard day's work for the sluggard is just turning over in bed. The sluggard buries his hand in the dish. It wears him out to bring it back to his mouth. That also is a funny image. Laziness is not funny, though. I passed by the field of a sluggard, by the vineyard of a man lacking sense, and behold, it was all overgrown with thorns. The ground was covered with nettles, and its stone wall was broken down. Then I saw and considered it. I looked and received instruction. A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty will come upon you like a robber and want like an armed man. The book of Proverbs calls us to self-control in the, the company that we keep. Proverbs 13, 20, whoever walks with the wise becomes wise, but the companion of fools will suffer harm. Now, that's just a sampling. It's not even 1107 yet. That's just a sampling of what the book of Proverbs teaches us about the need for self-control. Uh, let me talk to the kids in the remaining time I have until 11. I <laughs> said, why are you so fixated on 1107? I don't know. That's just when I'm supposed to start the next point. Um, kids, kids, hearing no is not fun. We all know, we all understand in this room that hearing the word no is not fun. But understand, I want you to understand, kids, that one of the ways that your parents love you, one of the ways that God has blessed you with loving parents is for them to train you, to teach you, by using this word no, they're teaching you about self-control. They're teaching you that it's good for us to say no sometimes to things that we want because God wants something else. It's hard when you want to have more screen time and they say no, or when you want to have 
more dessert and they say no. Or you want them to buy you a toy and they say no. But, but the book of Proverbs teaches us, God's word teaches us that being able to say no to your wrong desires so that you can say yes to what God wants for you is a really good thing. So maybe today, sometime, you want to thank your parents for saying no to you sometimes and teaching you how to be self-controlled. And parents, it's good for us to remember that too because we don't like to say no. I know, kids, you, you may think we like to say no. We don't like saying no. But parents, remember that, that if we are always saying yes, if we always say yes to our kids, we're setting themselves up for ruin like a city with no walls. It's, it's good for us parents to upset our children sometimes by telling them no. We could say many more things about the need for self-control, different areas where self-control could be practiced, and I, I think it should be talked about, but that's all I'm going to do this morning. But I would very much encourage you, take advantage of this lunch opportunity that we have for those of you that are going to be there, or just after the service before you leave, or this week as you meet with others, as you connect with others, ask them, where is the battle for self-control being waged most vigorously in your life this week? That's a good thing for us to talk about. This is, this is a way that we fight for the fruit of self-control by bringing others into that struggle. So do that with each other. Ask each other, where's that, where's that battle raging for you this week? And share with each other, encourage one another, exhort one another, pray with one another, hold one another accountable. Because self-control is a fight. And that, that does bring us to our second consideration, the pursuit of self-control. Self-control is a fruit of the Spirit. It's a gift of the Holy Spirit. It's not just something we can manufacture on our own, but it is a gift that we receive actively. Uh, author and biblical counselor Ed Welsh makes a comparison with the Hebrews uh, going into the promised land. He says, as the Hebrews were promised the land but they had to take it by force one town at a time. So we are promised the gift of self-control, yet we also must take it by force. He's not just making that up. The Bible actually teaches that because in 2 Peter chapter 1, it says that God's divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness. And then it says there in 2 Peter 1, therefore, because you've got this divine power, make every effort, make every effort sounds like taking something by force. It sounds like diligent, hard effort. Make every effort to add to your faith virtue and to virtue, knowledge, and to knowledge, self-control. So the, the call to self-control presupposes that ourselves are in need of restraint, and thus we must work, we must expend effort cultivating the skill of living a thoughtful, careful life in which we do what is right despite our desires. But at this point, as we begin to talk about the pursuit of self-control, I want to make an important clarification because you could be sitting here thinking that a life of devotion to God is just a life of constantly saying and hearing no to everything as if the, as if the character of God is like that 
misleading caricature of Puritanism. Maybe you've heard this, that Puritanism was the the haunting fear that someone somewhere must be happy. And if you, you hear all this talk about no and restraining ourselves, and this is the will of God, and this is walking in wisdom, is saying no, 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 you might just think, well, it just seems like God's whole agenda for the world is to make everybody miserable with a whole bunch of no's. And that would be very wrong for us to think that way. The people of God do say no to evil desires, to desires that are sinful and contrary to his will, but the pursuit of self-control is not one of just say no. If I was to say to you right now, I guess I am saying to you right now, um, do not think of a circle. What did you all just do? No. You just thought of a circle. That's right. I just, just, just saying no, just saying don't does not help at all. We say no to the evil desires that need to be restrained by saying yes to wisdom by saying yes to the superior power and pleasure of the fear of the Lord. So let's just say, again, I don't belabor this often in in messages with a wide range of age in in the room, but let's just say you're tempted to look at something inappropriate online, and it is a very strong temptation, and you feel that it is not possible to resist, and as you are preparing to click on the link, Someone walks into the room and says, stop. If you do not click that link right now, if you do not click it tonight, if you shut that down, I have in this bag a million dollars cash and I will give it to you tax-free right now, no questions asked. I believe that you will suddenly have found the gift of self-control. That perhaps a minute earlier, you felt you didn't have. Now, I'm not sure sometimes why some things I say make people laugh and other things that I think might make someone laugh makes them laugh. That's maybe kind of humorous if there weren't people in the room right now who were in self-confessed bondage to sexual immorality. I'm simply saying we don't just work for self-control by saying no to something, but by saying yes to something. And that yes is wisdom. That, yes, is the revelation of who God is that produces in us the fear of him that makes, as I prayed earlier, the passing pleasures of sin go strangely dim in light of his glory and grace. Proverbs 29, 18 says, where there is no prophetic vision, or maybe the most simple translation is, where there is no revelation, the people cast off restraint. But blessed is he who keeps the law. Casting off restraint, that is the exact opposite of self-control. And that lack of restraint flourishes where there's no revelation, where there's no vision, which is most likely in the book of Proverbs a reference to the sage's wisdom that is contained in this book, the, the revelation of God's law, his instruction for his people. And we know that the way of wisdom, that the, that the book of Proverbs that Solomon commends is no gloomy, stifling instruction, but it is an invitation to the sweetest and most satisfying life imaginable. Proverbs 3.13 says, blessed is the one who finds wisdom and the one who gets understanding for the gain from her, 
The gain from wisdom is better than gain from silver, and her profit better than gold. She is more precious than jewels, and nothing you desire can compare with her. Wisdom is better than a tax-free bag of a million dollars. And wisdom is found ultimately in knowing the person of Jesus Christ. God's word does not give us a bunch of principles to just help us live a wise life. It gives to us a person, a living person, a glorious person, the Lord Jesus Christ in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. That is the clear teaching on self-control that Paul gives in his pastoral letter uh, to a young pastor named Titus. In Titus chapter 2, Paul is giving Titus instructions on how he's supposed to shepherd and train the church. And he divides the church basically into four categories, the old men and the uh, old women and the young men and the young women. And he says, and you can read this at the beginning of Titus 2, all four categories, old men, old women, young men, young women, they all need to be trained in self-control. And so he tells them to train and instruct in self-control, and then he reminds Titus and all who would be instructed by Titus of the foundation and the fountain of all God-glorifying self-control. He says in Titus 2, and I trust many of you know these verses already, but they must be read in a sermon about self-control. The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all, training us, there's that idea of force and effort and pursuit, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. So by all means, brothers and sisters, by all means, speak a big, loud, resounding no to ungodliness and worldly passions, wherever they may be found, tempting you and seducing you, and invite others, call others into your life to help you say no to sin, but do so by saying a great big yes to the grace of God, the past grace and the present grace and the future grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is by grace that we have become brothers of the most self-controlled man in the history of the world. And if you're wondering who I mean, I mean that man, the Lord Jesus Christ. All his life, the entirety of his earthly life was lived without sin. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. He stayed the course even when sweat came like drops of blood. He, he was reviled, he was mocked, he was slandered, he was mistreated. And he could have called 12 legions, talk about restraint. He could have called down legions of angels 
to rescue him and vindicate him, but he had the self-control not to rebut all those false charges or defend himself. When reviled, he did not revile in return. They spit in his face and struck him, and some slapped him, and they scourged him, and they nailed him to a cross, and every trial and temptation, every one of them, in them, he was learning obedience, we're told in Hebrews 5.8. He learned obedience through what he suffered. And the very pinnacle of his self-control was that he was obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And he did that for us, not just so that we might have a shining example of a man who really did walk in self-control. Jesus is a wonderful example, and we can draw and be encouraged and learn from his example. But he was not only an example to us. Jesus endured that because it was the way that God would liberate us from the harsh bondage that we have to our own desires and to the righteous wrath of God that we deserve because we have chosen to live according to our desires instead of living in submission to him. Jesus suffered the wrath of God on the cross for all of our failures, all of our unrestrained passion with which we have pursued our own glory and our own pleasures. And Jesus got up from the grave on the third day to demonstrate that he had paid the price of our redemption in full and that he was therefore able to save to the uttermost all who would draw near to God through him. Now I know I do get to talking a lot and I get to talking loudly and y'all need me to just hit pause for a minute, and so let me do that right now. If you are here this morning, and you have not trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ, I want you to just hear me, because I believe God's Spirit can use it in your life. When you hear what, what I shared earlier, there is a way that seems right to a man, to a man, but its end is the way to death. If you are here this morning, living your own life, doing your own thing, and feeling okay about that. I want you to hear God's word. That is not the way God made you to live. And the way you're going to find life and freedom and peace is not by just living for your own desires. Your desires do not define your identity. What defines your identity is that God made you. And he made you in his image. He made you to know and have a relationship with him. And when we turn away from that relationship, the Bible says we're living in folly. The Bible compares it to a dog returning to his vomit. That's what Proverbs 29, that's not the right reference. I'm sorry, I don't remember the reference. It's not 29.11, but it's, it's in Proverbs. I will get you the reference if you think I'm making this up. I'm not. Like a dog that returns to his vomit is a fool who repeats his folly. To be recklessly ruled by your own desires is, is fitting for a dog. It's not fitting for a human being. You were created for something much more noble than eating vomit. You were created to have passions, not to kill all desire, but to have desires that are directed by and for the glory of God. 
And if you are sitting here this morning and you would come to the end of yourself and you would realize that's like, yeah, I'm just doing my own thing and I actually see there's no real long-term life to be found there. Hear that invitation that Jason began the service with from Isaiah 55. The, the living God says, come, lay down your foolish lust for your own vomit and come to me and eat and drink and I will give you the richest food. I will give you fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore if you would confess that your way is the way to death and that there's mercy and grace and life and honor to be found in living for the Lord Jesus. If you would come to him today confessing your sin, relying upon his grace, he will rescue you and bring you in to his heavenly kingdom. He will do that for you today. And brothers and sisters, for those of you who have received Christ, he hasn't just rescued, he hasn't just given you that past grace, but he is able to strengthen you now in the present. His grace trains us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live a self-controlled and an upright godly life in the present age. Ultimately, the call to self-control is a call to Christ control because we know God's word says that the love of Christ controls us. And he controls us when the love of Christ is controlling us. He empowers us to live no longer for ourselves, but for him who for our sake died and was raised. Having made us alive in Christ, our gracious father has given us a spirit, not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. So you might not feel this sitting here today. I don't know what you're, I have had some moments this past week of self-control where I have subdued my anxious fretting and my why is this and my woe is me. I have had moments where that peace surpassing understanding has come. And I have known other times where it hasn't. So I don't know what you feel like this week. I don't know what you feel like as you come in here today. But I want you to know that if you're a follower of Jesus and you have the Holy Spirit in you, God's word says you are well outfitted for the task of putting to death ungodly passions. Your cravings may go deep, but they are no match for the spirit of the living God. Because self-control is a gift produced in and through us by God's spirit, Christians can and should be the people on the planet most hopeful about growing in self-control. And it is, it is growing. It is a life of struggle. It is, a it is a life of fits and starts. It's growing and struggling and stumbling and lamenting our weakness and confessing and repenting and do it again. And as we do all of that, we're waiting for that future grace of the Lord Jesus. We're waiting for that blessed hope when Christ completes the good work that he has begun in us, when there is no longer any raging war inside of us, when faith will have become sight, when we see Jesus as he is and thus become like him. God's word is true for you, Christian, as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. That is your destiny, Christian brother and sister. You will bear the image of the man of heaven. You already bear his likeness now, but the day is coming when faith becomes sight, when you see him as he is, and you will perfectly reflect his image as you were made to. We will be made perfect in self-control and in every other fruit of the Spirit. Let me read one more passage of Scripture to you. 1 Corinthians 9. 
hear this call from the Apostle Paul. Do you not know that in a race, all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So follow his example when he says, I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. Beloved, it is a labor. It is a hard, wearying labor to fight for self-control. But as you labor and wait, look to that imperishable crown. Do not lose sight that we are headed towards that endless life till all the ransomed church of God be saved to sin no more, where we'll never have to worry about wrong desires in our hearts or in the hearts of others. No selfishness, no depression, no bitter divisions, no anger, no cruelty, no infidelity, no harshness, no reckless self-indulgence in that promised land. There will be only love. Joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. These nine fruits, I don't know how you've been processing the last nine weeks. It's been difficult for me. I thought it was going to be difficult because I thought it was going to be hard to look at the whole book of Proverbs every week and try to bring it all to bear. And that was hard. It was much harder, the, the mirror that God's word was giving to me of myself. These nine fruits, they call us to something. There's a challenge there. But don't just hear it as something you got to do and make happen in your life. Hear these nine fruits as, as, as little down payments that we get now. Little promises and foretastes of a coming glory, which no eye has seen, nor ear has heard, nor the heart of man imagined. Praise God, beloved, for all the good that he has already done in us and for all that he is yet to do. And until that day, may God make us pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Love you, dear saints. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would help us. Help us to learn to say no to what is corrupt still in us. It is, it is hard, it is exhausting to know that in this, in this life, the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh, for these are opposed to each other to keep us from doing the things that we want to do. It's hard, it's exhausting, but you have given us what we need to walk in self-control, to bring you glory with our lives, and so Father, we ask for your help. Help us to love Jesus. Help us to not just live a life trying to say no. Help us to say yes to Jesus. Help us to say yes to walking in the fear of you. Help us to taste and see that you are good and that you are glorious and that you are gracious and that you are great and greatly to be praised. And may our lives bring glory and honor to you as we seek to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, to live a self-controlled and upright and godly life in this present age. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen.